Please be seated. So you're taking your seats, you'll uh, find in the bulletin that our text for this morning is Micah chapter 5. Uh, for those of us who haven't been in the Minor Prophets for a little while, you'd find that around page 775 to 780 in your pew Bible, 775 to 780. And as you're turning there, I'll go ahead and give us a little bit of context for where we are. We're studying uh, the Advent uh, story, we're studying the birth narrative, and so we're going back in history, we're going back to the time of the birth of Christ, the taking on of flesh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, come to become very man of very man, in addition to being very God of very God. And this morning, uh, in line with the uh, study that we're doing in this Advent season of prophecies, looking forward to the birth of the Christ child, we're going to go back before the birth of Christ to the book of Micah, which is that prophecy, that prediction that the child who would be the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. So, as you find the chapter and verse, chapter 5, verse 1, I will read uh, chapters, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. We'll pray and then begin our time in the sermon this morning. Starting with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Please pray with me. Father, please bless our time together in your word. Help us to surrender our hearts to the wisdom of your counsel, to the counsel of your spirit, that we might be able to praise you for what you accomplish in Christ the Messiah. Christ, the child who was born to redeem man from his sin and reconcile man to you. We pray that you would help us see this clearly in our time together this morning, to your glory. Amen. As we look at this passage, I'm hoping that we'll take away something in general, and that's that we can today be humbled and be informed, be instructed, be corrected, and be grown in righteousness and grace by prophecies that were uttered far and long ago in the time preceding the birth of Christ, in the time preceding the time of the cross, the time of the prophets, yet still a time of God's people, it's still a time when God had made promises that his people could rely on, that would see them through until the Christ would be born, until the Christ would die, suffer, be buried, raised, ascend on high and rule until he returns again in his second advent. This is a time this morning to remember the promises that God made and also the promises that God fulfilled in Christ. And so I want us to see first, as we're humbled by this prophecy, as we're instructed by this prophecy, one that we should be humbled because God does judge sin. He did in the Old Testament, and he does today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is why we need a Messiah. God judges sin. It's a time of sobriety, a time of thinking, of reflecting upon why we need a Savior. Second, we should be humbled by the grace of God to make such a promise that a ruler such as Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So if we're humbled by the fact that God judges sin. 
We're humbled by the fact that God makes a promise in light of the reality of that sin that he would judge, that we might have a hope as a people. And then last, as a result of that promise that God has made, I pray that we would see the result of that promise is peace to God's elect, peace to God's people, peace to God's redeemed, peace to those whom God's, who God loves. And so I want you to take this away, that when we think about the fact that it was predicted that Christ would be born in Bethlehem, one who would rule for all eternity, that we would rejoice in the promises of God, not only that he made them, but also that he blesses us in them, even to this day. So starting with the first point, if you look at verse 1, you would read this. You would see that it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Those are words of warfare. Those are words of battle. You might even call them fighting words. Those are fighting words. But Micah is calling the people of Jerusalem to account. He's calling the people of God to account. You see, we need to understand the context in which uh, Micah made this prophecy, in which Micah tells the people, prepare to be sieged. Prepare for Assyria who's coming to encircle our city, to take us into captivity, for us to be punished by God for our sin. A little bit about Micah to understand this prophecy. One, Micah preached at the same time, he was a prophet at the same time, as the prophet Hosea, who was a prophet in the northern kingdom, which was Israel. The capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. And then he was also preaching at the time of the famous prophet Isaiah, who preached in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And so Micah is maybe not as well known of a prophet, yet he preached at a paramount time in the history of the people of God. At a time when judgment is impending, when an enemy is coming to take them into a promised captivity, when they are being encircled. But why? Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 1. I'll read it for you. It says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. See, we have a reference to where Micah was from. He was from just outside of Jerusalem, Moresheth. It's a city or a region about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. You could say he was a country preacher, a country prophet. And who did he preach to? He preached to the kings concerning the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And whenever it refers to Samaria and Jerusalem, there's this term called a synecdote. And a synecdote is a part that represents the whole. So when I refer to Washington, D.C., and I say things are grim or things are really great in Washington, D.C., you know I'm referring to the nation of the United States as a whole when I refer to Washington, D.C. That is what Micah is doing whenever it says that he is speaking to Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. So essentially, he's calling the whole of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to account. And what is it that he's saying to them? What is it that he's speaking to him? Look at verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1. It says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. This is to demonstrate, to display the greatness, the authority, the anger, the wrath of God in response to sin. And then you see the accusation for why God is coming down to judge the people of God for their sin in verse 5. 
Broadly, in chapter 1, it says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? To what extent does God mean to call his people to account for their sins? Chapter 2, verse 1. Briefly, because we're in a book that we haven't been in. Just look there. It says, Woe! Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in their power, in the power of their hand. Prophecy of woe, proclamation of woe. Micah is doing what is expected of all preachers, all prophets, to preach, to present, to call to account people by the whole counsel of God. To let them know what God's holy standard is. To let them know what it is they are responsible for, accountable to. This is the context in which Micah is saying a child, a redeemer, will be born in Bethlehem. We cannot speak about the good news without first acknowledging the bad news, which is that we are in need of a Savior. We are guilty of sin. That is the context of which Micah is preaching. Going back to verse 1 of chapter 5, we re-enter our text. And it says halfway through, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel, the judge, the king, the ruler, the leader. What does it mean to strike a leader on the face, to publicly denounce them? This is shame to the leader of the nation of Israel. Shame to the leader of God's people. Pastor Aaron referred to last Sunday that often, as the leader of a nation goes, so goes the nation. So the leader, so the nation. And the leaders were failing in their leadership, failing in holiness, failing in uprightness, failing in righteousness, failing to remember the word of the Lord. And so also the nation was failing. The northern kingdom was failing much more quickly. The kingships were lasting in short periods before the next king would come, and then the next king, one replacing the next, sin increasing. And a little less quickly, but still the same trajectory, the southern kingdom as well. And God sends Micah to the king to say, remember my word, and your account has come due. I'm calling your payments due. It's time for you to pay up. And as we look at this, we see that there's a purpose in punishment. When a parent punishes their child, it is for the purpose of correction. So the, to the people of God, to the remnant, to the elect, to those whom God loves, yet have fallen into sin, God is saying, I will let you fall into captivity of Assyria. I will let you go through hardship so that you will remember your need of me. So that you will remember that I am your God and you are my people. So that you will call out to me, confess your sin, and remember the promises I have made. Remember the future that I have set before you, but also the standard of living that I have for you as my people. The purpose of correction. The purpose of punishment is correction. Illustrating it this way. Parents, if you were to put your child in timeout, they're young, they're three, they're four, they're five, if you were to send them to sit in a corner on a stool, you would not also say, you're in trouble, go sit in the corner, but here's a Game Boy to entertain yourself with while you're there. Here's a PlayStation, a PSP, something to make the time enjoyable. That doesn't reinforce the message that is being sent. The time and the seat in the corner is to remember that which was done wrong. So you might also remember that which to do that is right. I remember one time I was in a Bible study and a parent was explaining that when they corrected their child before they would send them to their room or before they would take away a privilege, that they would sit with that child and say, do you understand why you're being punished? And then in addition to that, they would say, don't forget that I love you. 
It's not just because I said so, though you should acknowledge that. But remember that I love you. And remember that this correction is for your long-term good, your ultimate good. Another illustration, maybe a little more extreme, would be, let's say there's a teenager. And then a teenager of a parent uh, uh, sees a car sitting in the parking lot with the keys in it, and they decide to take it for a test drive. And uh, they get caught, and now they're in trouble, and the parents are sitting with them. Privileges will be lost, right? Privileges will be taken away. There will be no going out to the movies on the weekends. There will be no video gaming. But in taking away certain privileges, that child is getting an extra dose of what they need. Time in the right environment. Time with the right instruction. Time with parents. Reminders that they're loved. Reminders that there's a standard to which that child needs to live. Carrying the same last name as their parents. Not any behavior will be tolerated. But the right behavior will be encouraged, is expected, is rewarded. So too, God's relationship with his children. That when God sends us into trials as his covenant children, when God sends us into hardship to train us in righteousness or as punishment to remind us that we need him, that we are called to live in holiness, called to praise his name, called to know his law. So God is doing this with Israel. And it's in that context that God says, as you go into judgment, as you go into trial and tribulation, Here is a promise, the reminder that I love you, to carry you through that hardship. So what is the purpose of promise? The purpose of the promise is perseverance. It's endurance. It's training. It's reflecting to know the promise maker, to know the promise keeper. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Again, just to understand this prophecy a little bit more, I'll read this to you. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. This is the beginning of the promises that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, let, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of who? Of Jacob, the covenant God, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, peace, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, Hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. The promises begin in chapter 4. So there's woe, there's judgment, you're guilty of sin. But here's a promise, and the promises start. So in chapter 5, when we get the promise of a ruler who would be born in Bethlehem, he's already gaining speed in his promises. God is already laying groundwork that's positive, saying, trust me, remember me, believe in me. Promises, promises. A day of hope, a day of returning to the mountain of the Lord, a day of being brought back together as his people, a day of peace when there's no more war. Look forward, look forward. And then the pinnacle of that, the pinnacle of that, verse 2. 
a ruler from Bethlehem will be born. Now remember, there was another ruler that was born from Bethlehem, a famous ruler, a loved, beloved ruler of the people of the Jews, King David. King David was born in Bethlehem. King David was the forerunner of Christ. In many ways, King David points directly to Christ. The Psalms that David wrote point to Christ many, many times. And so we have a a type of redeemer, King David, born in Bethlehem. Even David in Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord. And we have this explained to us in the New Testament that David means that there would be a ruler who comes after him, who would be greater than him, who King David would call his Lord. There was a promise made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, and God said that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. An eternal reign, an eternal promise, an eternal good and godly, God-fearing, God-loving, righteous ruler. You see, whenever Micah made this promise from God to God's people, they would have immediately thought back. Bethlehem, King David's hometown. And they would have remembered the promises made to King David. If you were to look in Psalm 3, the promises for perseverance. If you were to look at, not Psalm 3, but if you were to look in the Psalms, the Psalms are broken into five books. And there's book 1 and book 2, which is understanding concepts about God, praising God. It's many times recounts of historical moments in the life of David and how he responded in worship and prayer. It's a guide to the Christian life. But the third book of the Psalms often is representative of partly the, the people of God needing to remember, yet having forgotten at some level, the promises of God. God, will you really answer your promises? God, I'm doubting. God, do you remember me? God, have you heard me? And then the fourth book, the fourth segment of the Psalms says, oh, God is faithful. God has made those promises. Remember the promises of God. It's a need for every Christian to look back on the promises, to understand the promises, and for us in the time that we exist to remember that God has fulfilled those promises. He has answered them. Verse 2, you have what I would call eternity language. See, as we're being humbled by the grace of God's promise, it's helpful to look at verse 2 and to see that it says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient days. That's Hebrew slang, if you will, for eternity past. This is divine attribution. This is saying this ruler is special. This ruler is unlike any king that has ever been or will ever be again. This is pointing to godliness, divine endorsement. And we know that Christ, being the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God. I'll also point out in verse 3 that it says, Until she who is in labor gives birth. When are we to expect this king? Until she who is in labor has given birth. Now remember, Micah is addressing a corporate people. He's addressing nations. He's addressing the broadness of of God's people, of his covenant community. And so whenever Micah is addressing them, there is a corporate aspect. You people of God, you nation of God, you who have together received God's law and his word. This promise is for you. This reference is to you that, that there will be a time when this leader is produced for this nation, but it's just impossible to not also think of the fact that, yes, until she gives birth. And we think to the Advent story, we think to the birth narrative, we think about Elizabeth, and we think about her uh, old age conception, and then we think about Mary, and we think about the fact that she conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
miracle of miracles, to carry forth this promised ruler. Yes, this prophecy speaks of the Christ child. And God has done it, and that child has been born, and we have a ruler who is ruler over Israel, God's Israel, God's people. The first reference is to God's people, but the further allusion is to Mary, certainly. Then look at verse 3. It says, the outcome of this, the accomplishments, what will this ruler accomplish? The rest of the brothers will then return to Israel. After the child, then the brothers will be brought in, will return to Israel. Total Israel, the church, God's people, they will come home. God's people will be gathered together into his kingdom. We will worship him together. One kingdom, one citizenship, one people, one ruler. It's eschatological. That means looking forward to the end. But let me ask you, what kind of ruler are we looking for? What kind of ruler would you hope for? If I asked you, write down 10 descriptors of a good ruler, of the type of ruler that you want to rule over you. If I asked an unbeliever that question, they would probably give me an answer that would say, I want a God who endorses that which I do. A God who allows me to get away with that which I want. A God who feeds my felt needs, my desired needs, instead of giving me that which I need, which at times is punishment, correction, his law, his word, rules for my good. We'll look at verse 3 and verse 4. Starting in verse 4, actually, it says that this God will stand, he will actively rule. See, we have a description in verse 4 of what this ruler is going to be like. He will stand. He will actively intervene for the benefit of his people. He will be for their good, and he will have no end to his rule. He will be a shepherd. Who was a shepherd king before Christ? David, pointing forward to Christ. Shepherding is a a kingly reference. He will be a a protector. He will be a provider. But more than that, he will be counted from among us. He will be from his people. He will take on flesh. He will suffer. He will have empathy for you. He will understand what it means to be tempted, though he will never fail in sin. He will be compassionate. He will be capable of showing mercy beyond mercy and grace beyond grace. Not just in the immediate, not just for the healing of people while he walked this earth, but also mercy and grace eternal. Mercy and grace in the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of God's people to himself. In verse 4 it says that he will rule in the strength of the Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the covenant God, the Old Testament God. This is divine endorsement that he is from God, established by God, put into office by God. Verse 4, royalty in the majesty of the name of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, in the royalty of God. Royalty from eternity past, from ancient of days. His lineage goes back further than Abraham, further than David, further than anyone you can find in the Old Testament, but God himself, because he's very God, a very God. And in verse 4, it says that this king and what he will accomplish for us, we will dwell safely, we will dwell securely, we will be able to rest in that security. We have pointing forward to this from another prophet, from Jeremiah 31, 31. When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. These are the promises of God to his covenant people. This is often referred to as the Emmanuel principle. When we sing the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us. The God with us principle. That God has promised to be with his people. That he longs to be with us and we long to be with him. Yet he cannot tolerate a sin. There's an obstacle that needs to be resolved in the heart of every man who God would have be with him. 
And so when he calls them, the blood of Christ is applied to that man's heart, that woman's heart, that child's heart, that elderly person's heart. And now that person can dwell with God by the power and the strength and the value of the blood of Christ and his accomplishment. Verse 4 tells us what this ruler of Israel will accomplish. One last thing in verse 4. To what extent? It says, this ruler will be great to the ends of the earth. There is nowhere that sin will hide or continue to exist under the reign of this ruler. Sin will be vetted out. All hearts that are redeemed to heaven, to God, to his kingdom, will be made pure, will be made holy, will be made fit to worship God perfectly. Through the process of sanctification and at the moment of glorification, when we reach eternity and our spirit ascends to join with God, and then in the future when the bodies are resurrected from the grave and Christ calls us out and sorts the good from the bad that he has called to himself and he says, these are mine. To the ends of the earth. Psalm 110 gives reference to this, that this ruler who would be greater than David, God will make the nations his footstool. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And so in light of this promise, which God has fulfilled, as we look back to Christ taking on flesh, being born, we should be humbled by the result of that promise. Verse 5. And he will be their peace. It's worth noting that in Genesis 3, when it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will strike his heel. He is singular, he is masculine, reference to the same he, the same ruler, the same promise, fleshed out, literally taking on flesh, fleshed out. But in verse five, when it says he will be our peace, it's peace for today, for the believer. Peace to look forward and hope. Peace to trust in God today. Peace for the Christian life. This is not a peace only awaiting in the future, but already not yet. Already, today, we're in Christ. We're in his promises. We have faith that's been given to us as a gift to believe. Peace for today. Peace for sickness. Peace for hardships. Peace for financial difficulties. Peace for marital strife. Peace for lack of wisdom. Peace for our own frailties. Peace for times when we sin that we know that we're still covered in the blood of Christ. Though we should repent, though we must repent, though we must confess our sin, we are still held, persevered by the strength of God, held until the time of glory, because God has promised us peace. And when he calls us, once saved, always saved, blessed by peace in Christ. But not just peace for today, not only peace for today, peace for eternity ultimate peace, final peace, everlasting peace. How long will he rule? Forever. How far will he rule? To the ends of the earth. Peace for all time, in all places, under the dominion of God. Peace and peace. Christ is our peace. And so I pray that as we remember this promise that a ruler would be born in Bethlehem who has been born, who does now rule, ascended on high at the right hand of God the Father, that you would rest in that peace belonging to God. If you do not belong to God, I can't imagine that you have that peace. It's impossible. But it could be possible should the Spirit grant you understanding, the gift of faith, of who Christ is, of your need of salvation because God judges sin. That God made a promise and he saw it through. And now we await the return of Christ, the second coming, the next coming of Christ. 
And this is what it means in that song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, when it says, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we bow before you, sinners confessing our need of a Savior. Those saved, redeemed by Christ, elected to your good purposes, elected to walk in good works, empowered by the Spirit that you've given us. We pray that you would bless our time of worship in this season, that you would help us to remember that the Christ that you promise has come, the ruler that you promise has come. He rules today. We trust in him and we praise you for it. To your glory, in Christ's name, amen.